Today is Hebrews 2020, We See Jesus, and it's increment 107. And we are going to continue on a line that we began in 106, I think, at least. Possibly enter into a little bit of the theological functional specialty of dialectic or dialectics. And... We'll enter into that pretty soon. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we pray that you'll open the eyes of our understanding and the eyes of our heart, that we may behold wonderful things in your word. And we know once again that the sum total of those wonderful things is your son, Jesus Christ. For our series is called We See Jesus, and that is our goal and our aspiration as well as our present experience as you enlighten us through the word. May the entrance and the exposition of your word give light and shed light where there are places in us that are void without form, that are darkened, and we pray that you'll enter in with light and that that light will become the joy that we will experience in the jubilee of rest that still remains for the people of God. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Our passage is Hebrews 4, 12 to 13, and our translation reads like this so far. Indeed, the word of God is currently living and active and sharper than every double-edged blade, even penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit and of nerve fibers and myelin and is able to judge or critically assess the deliberations and determinations of the heart, the rational, intentional consciousness of human beings. For there is no created being, and the emphasis is beginning to fall on this passage or this verse, For there is no created being, and that word in the Greek is katesis, K-T-I-S-I-S. There is no created being, katesis, who isn't naked and completely exposed to the eyes of him to whom we are accountable. Let's read 13 again. There is no created being, catesis, that is hidden from his sight. A little allusion to Adam and Eve trying to hide themselves from the Lord. Everything and every being in creation is naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom We are accountable. That's our passage. And once again, we've said this is true in every era, in every age. No matter how history and the scenarios of history change and the cultural milieus of civilization change, the word of God remains the same and so does the accountability of the creature to the creator, the accountability of all human beings to the divine being named God, whose Son 
is Jesus Christ, whose spirit is the spirit of grace. Now, during the time between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70, there arose the, quote, belief that the community itself, that is the so-called Christian community, was the eschatological place of God's presence. And of this phenomenon, Richard Bauckham wrote the following paragraph. The importance of this view, that is that the community itself was in the place of the temple. The importance of this view is that it explains both how the Jerusalem church could remain a party within common Judaism and how other Christian groups could move to a more marginal position from a common Jewish standpoint. From this view of the community as the eschatological temple, it was possible to conclude either that Christians should, or at least could, continue to take part in the worship of the Jerusalem temple while it stood, until, that is, God himself removed it, or that since the temple was already superseded by the community as the new temple, Christians should not participate in the temple worship. The Jerusalem church seems to have taken the former view and by its praxis with regard to the temple maintained its standing in the Jewish community even if with some difficulty. The author to the Hebrews, this I would put in bold if you were to picture this paragraph, the author to the Hebrews is the only Christian voice from before 70 CE. Now, CE is a word meaning common era. It's used now instead of AD in a lot of places. I like AD better. And CE, though, uh, okay. So he said the author to the Hebrews is the only Christian voice from before 70 CE who clearly takes the latter view. Now, that latter view, as he explains, and this is incidentally from a book called The Jewish World Around the New Testament, published in 2008, and it's under an article called The Parting of the Ways, What Happened and Why, and written by Richard Bauckham himself. That book is invaluable, The Jewish World around the New Testament, an invaluable resource for understanding the time and the place around the, the New Testament, the Jewish world around the New Testament. Very, very excellent series of writings. But here's where we get a little dialectical. If indeed the author to the Hebrews was a Christian voice, from before A.D. 70, and I agree that he was, also known as C.E. 70, or 70 C.E., the common era. If that's true, then at the time of the writing of Hebrews, the temple in Jerusalem was still standing, and the Aaronic 
high priests, Aaronic meaning of the order of Aaron, as opposed to the order of Melchizedek that we'll see later on, Aaron or Levi, his grandson, also known as the Levitical order. So if indeed the author of the Hebrews was a Christian voice from before A.D. 70, then at the time of the writing of Hebrews, the temple in Jerusalem was still standing and the Aaronic high priest was still in office in Jerusalem. And priests and high priests of the Aaronic order were still operative and still serving the tabernacle and serving at the altar. At that time, there were many thousands, and this is important to know, there were, quote, many thousands among the Jews of those who have believed. They had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Thousands, many thousands in Jerusalem. But in Acts 21.20, they were all zealous for the law. Zealous, still, for the Mosaic law. And again, if the author to the Hebrews was a Christian voice from before A.D. 70, and we'll assume that he was, and the Aaronic high priest was still entering the second room of the holy place in the temple, and as Hebrews 9, 7, it was never without blood which he offers for himself and the sins of the people. That was still going on. Priests were still entering the second room of the holy place, the high priest did, in the temple. And when he went in, it was never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of his people, of the people. If that is a voice before A.D. 70, then worshipers were still, quote, approaching the man-made holy place to offer the same sacrifices year after year, Hebrews 10.1, and every priest of that first system kept standing day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices, which again, the Hebrews author says, could never take away sins. I got that, and I agree with Bauckham's take on that, but it's difficult to agree with Bauckham's assertion, if he is indeed making that assertion, that the author to the Hebrews is the only Christian voice before 70 AD who advocated that the temple was already superseded by the community or the church as the new temple. The reason I say that is because Paul, the apostle, was a clear advocate for that same reality, insisting pretty emphatically in 1 Corinthians 3.16 that the Corinthian saints were of that mixed community who constituted the temple of God. In fact, he made it emphatic this way. He said, don't you know that you people are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Again, that's 1 Corinthians 3.16. That seems pretty emphatic, pretty plain and clear. What is also clear is that Paul wrote 
or dictated to a secretary those very words, and that the Christian Corinthian correspondence was indeed written before 70 AD or 70 CE. It's true that Paul insisted on going to Jerusalem in Acts 21, even when he was warned of the consequences by the prophet Agabus. Agabus was a remarkable prophet. He's, a, he's an admirable fellow, and he's uh, quite theatrical. He prophesied a famine would come, and it did so in Acts 11.10. Paul then spoke about this era of famine, which had occurred in the Claudian era, and even discouraged some people from marrying or having children, not because the end of the world was coming, but because it wouldn't have been entirely practical in a time of famine to do that. It was a time of crisis, and all times of crisis are designed for us to look to the Lord. He gets our attention. But Agabus came to Paul... And imagine Paul had a belt on, or maybe it would look more like a sash. Agabus went over to Paul and yanked his belt off, yanked the sash off Paul, and then wrapped it around his own hands and his own feet. Agabus did that. Talk about theatrical. And he said, this is what's going to happen to the man who goes to Jerusalem. It's going to happen to you, Paul. Sometimes prophets are perceived to be a little eccentric. But that's what Agabus did in Acts 21 in warning Paul about what's going to happen. So this, he says, in fact, more specifically, when he took Paul's belt from him and tied his own hands and feet with it, he said at the same time, quote, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will tie up the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. That's Acts 21, 10 to 11. Be patient, I'm getting to a point here. And this very prophecy notes the complicity of apostate Jerusalem with Rome or the Gentiles here. It could be argued that Paul, by returning to Jerusalem to make vows in the temple, was compromising his view that the temple was superseded by the new community. And so you might take on the surface that, meaning Paul wasn't a voice to separate yourself from the temple. But that's not the case at all. So it could be argued, and some have argued, that Paul, by returning to Jerusalem to make vows, was compromising his view that the temple was superseded by the new community, that which the PT in Hebrews calls the church of the firstborn in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. But here's where the dialectic comes in. It's more likely that the apostle was acting according to his own stated personal policy to, like the author of Hebrews, who seemed to acknowledge the ongoing practices of the old order of priests, so did Paul. 
In 1 Corinthians 9.13, Paul asked this question rhetorically. Don't you know that those who work in the temple, who serve in the temple, get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar have a share of the sacrificial offerings? Therefore, as in Hebrews, so in Corinthians, those things were still going on. There were still people serving in the physical temple in Jerusalem. They were eating of those sacrifices, meaning, well, Paul then said as in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who preach the gospel should get their living from the gospel. You see, they make a living by preaching the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.14. The crude way of saying it is they should be paid for it. They sh- the labor is worthy of his hire. So Paul was revealing practical policy. And he continues in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-20, where Paul disclosed that his policy, that though he was a man who he called free from everyone, and we should be free from everyone and enslaved to no one, He said, though I am free from everyone, I have made myself a slave to all in order to win more people. That means to faith in the gospel. So he wrote that to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Then, Important for our argument, he says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law. But notice what he says after a hyphen here. Even though I am not under the law. Don't misunderstand Paul. When he went to Jerusalem and paid some vows and met with some old friends there or some Jewish Christian leaders, don't make the mistake that He was putting himself under the law. He wasn't. He was becoming a Jew to win the Jews. And he became as a Jew in order to win Jews. But he said, and he came, became as one under the law. But he made a very clear point of saying, though I am not under the law. I did it to win those under the law. Jesus was even said to be born under the law to redeem those under the law in Galatians 4, 4, and 5, and 6. So Paul made the case both in Romans and Galatians that the law had been commandeered or hijacked by sin. And we capitalize sin here because Paul personified sin in his apocalyptic view of homardiology. He saw that the system among religionists in Jerusalem had infected certain Christian leaders whom he withstood and resisted at Antioch, where Peter even had been influenced by this scourge and where even Paul's partner Barnabas was being led away. So both Romans and Galatians, in both those epistles, Paul the Apostle strenuously opposed certain missionaries and the teacher who was their blind guide, as it were. 
and they adhered to a legalistic and even what he called an idolatrous perversion of the gospel in which they proclaimed that people could only be justified in God's sight by the works of the law. Now, again, don't make the mistake of thinking that by that Paul disparaged the law of Moses or despised it or even downgraded it. Paul certainly did not disparage the law of Moses per se, but he certainly blasted the distortions of the law into a system for justification or for a means of making a Gentile a true Jew, for example, through circumcision. And I think it's in a rather similar vein that the Hebrews writer regarded the offering of temple sacrifices under the assumption that they could sanctify the offerers. After receiving the knowledge of the truth that Jesus Christ once and for all sacrifice had already sanctified them and perfected them forever, as Hebrews 10.14 says. To do that, that is to associate yourself with the physical temple and to go on offering these sacrifices, the Hebrew writer was pretty clear about it, was actually a willfully sinful practice and even one for which there would never be another sacrifice in Hebrews 10.26. Strong words. The PT, I call him the author of Hebrews, a pastor teacher, is emphatic that these same sacrifices were never able to, quote, bring to completion. Remember Hebrews' theme regarding completion. Never able to bring to completion those who approach the holy place to offer them and that they can never take away sins. Hebrews 10.1, 10.11. This particular PT, the author of this heavenly homily, and those who were associated with him, including Timothy, Timothy was an associate both of Paul and this PT, Hebrews 13.23, compared with Philippians 2.20. This PT had evidently taught the word of God in such a way that there had come to be a separation of the souls and spirits of the listeners, which led, and this is extremely important, notice this flow and fluency of Hebrews. It led their listeners to their separation from the temple sacrifices being offered in the earthly man-made temple and separated that by their orientation heavenward to the holy of holies in heaven where Jesus, their great high priest and ours, had entered, having passed through the heavens into the tabernacle not of this creation. Hebrews 4.14 and then arrow fired into Hebrews 9.10 and 11. So I'll say that again. The PT and those who were associated with him, including Timothy, had evidently taught the word of God in such a way that there had come to be a separation of the souls and spirits of their listeners, which led to the separation of the listeners from the temple sacrifices being offered in the earthly man-made temple. 
and led to their orientation heavenward to the Holy of Holies in heaven where Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest, had entered, having passed through the heavens into the tabernacle, not of this creation. The glory, the Shekinah, had left the physical temple in Jerusalem. The, short, the glory, the Shekinah, that dwelt in the eternal word made flesh, had ascended to heaven, passed through the veil of his torn flesh, into the heavenly holy of holies. He saves us to the uttermost, which means he saves us even to the place of us being with him in the heavenly holy of holies above the heavens. Hebrews 9, 7.27 make that. So, there's a lot to this here today. There was a nuance here, however, it seems that some, and here's the nuance that I think is particularly relevant to Hebrews, and I didn't really get this from commentaries or even the suggestion of it from commentaries. The nuance is that some, it seems, that some of the recipients of this Christological homily called Hebrews were actually deliberating about and maybe even determining to go back to the temple sacrifices. Not because they didn't believe in Jesus or that he was the Christ, the Son of God. And not even because they were unconvinced of his accomplished redemption and unrepeatable sacrifice for sins. But they were deliberating and perhaps even determined to go back because by doing so, they could ingratiate themselves with their fellow Jews who were unbelieving and also come under the protection of the Roman government, which had been accorded to, at that time, accorded to Judaism, but certainly not accorded to the followers of Jesus who would be their king rather than Caesar. In other words, yes, we will... You guys that are partaking of temple sacrifices and have agreed to make a temple sacrifice for Caesar, you're okay, you're protected, you can even get vaccinated in a plague. You others, you Christians, who claim that Jesus is your king and not Caesar and have dissociated yourselves from the physical temple in Jerusalem, and therefore from the practices of the Judaism that we protect, you can't get the vaccine, you can't get citizen status in Rome, you can't get anything but persecuted. Because you follow the great king, you call him, when there's only one king, Caesar, and the apostate high priests in Jerusalem subscribe to him and kneel to him, as it were. In any given era, there's always 7,000 that God has set aside for himself that haven't genuflected the knee to some idol or other. Now, the PT's contention in Hebrews is that even if this is their motive, 
not to openly reject Christ, not to openly turn back on their confession of him, not to even disown the idea of his once and for all and forever unrepeatable sacrifice. But if this is their motive being to avoid social shame by offering these sacrifices, then that would entail the public shaming of Jesus Christ and even would constitute what he called a re-crucifixion of him, making them no different from those who called for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ before Pilate in John 19.15. The author was strong and strenuous with his words, calling it even a trampling underfoot of the Son of God and doing an insult or an outrage to the spirit of grace and a blatant disregard for the blood of the everlasting covenant, which is the blood of Jesus. They would be avoiding their own shame, in other words, at the expense of shaming their Lord. Their confession, and this is what Hebrews is all about, let your confession match your inward faith. Now, the historical situation has changed since then, if you haven't noticed. The cultural and social milieu or environment or sits im Leben, as the Germans call it, situation of life, has also changed. But in our time, the word of God is still vitally relevant and penetratingly operational. Consequently, Hebrews, as a heavenly homily, still offers a summons to us heavenward, is still vitally relevant and operationally pertinent on the level of our own time, atlat. It, the word of God, we could also say he, the word of God, penetrates to the division of soul and spirit and the action impulses of the nerves and the potential actions of the nerve pathways and their protective sheaths. Every creature, including every person, is still naked and exposed to the scrutiny of him, the eyes of him to whom we are, yes, still accountable. Though history changes, the world and the evil age currently remains the same for the time being. The God of this age still seeks to obscure the gospel of the glory of God's Christ in 2 Corinthians 4, 3, and 4. And there is still a system of social reward and shame in place in our current culture. The evil age rewards the lie and the sycophants of the lie and shames the truth, those who adhere to the truth. The world apart from God still despises the news 
that announces its end and its demise, the end of this world. Because the cross of Christ is really the end of the evil age. And so the zeitgeist or the world system with its currently fashionable religiosity having to do with idolatrous ecology, its trendy scientism, and its idolatrous humanistic ideologies continues to crown the creature as king over the creator. And continues to crown the ego or the I, capital I, over the ego, Amy, the great I am. There are still today the deliberations and determinations of human hearts, just as surely as there are neurological impulses and pathways that move all creatures, great and small. And there is still the heavenly calling of God which summons its hearers to come to Christ. He is still outside the camp of what is cosmically cool and what is adamically amicable. There is still today reproach associated with his name as indicated every day in the utterances of those who hate him without a reasonable reason in John 15:25 and even within the camp of those who call upon his name with evident reverence ostensibly in worship in preaching in songs and hymns there is a stubborn and sometimes fierce resistance to the insight of Jesus' universally saving grace and to the universal impact of his redeeming, reconciling, and rectifying death on the cross. And there is, even in the camp of Christendom, a resistance to the real, in-depth, teaching and proclamation of the word of God. Perhaps this is because of fear of God's judgment, which, yes, is part of the word of God's function. After all, isn't the word of God a judge, criticos, a critical assessor of the thoughts and intents of the heart? John wrote it right. People don't come to the light because they don't want to have their deeds reproved. John 3.20. See, I almost got Pentecostal there. The people in Isaiah's day told their prophets to speak smooth things. We want to order up a smoothie, a smooth message, something that's palatable, though not true, or palatable and so basic that it doesn't even help us spiritually. Prophesy, in some translations, have, I think the Revised Standard, the King James have it, smooth things. And prophesy illusions. Speak smooth things to us. And prophesy 
illusions in Isaiah 30 in verse 10. Prophesy to us in ways that coddle our own philosophical viewpoints, which protect our own self-justification. In Isaiah's day, they wanted messages that are like smoothies. Easy to drink and digest, no need to chew, like you'd have to do with solid food. When we think of the description of the Word of God and its so-called judgmental function, maybe we tend to forget that love trumps judgmentalism and mercy triumphs over judgment. James 2.13, for example. So let me read this again, our passage where we are kind of hovering over this passage and the emphasis starts to fall on 13. Indeed, the word of God is currently living and active and sharper than every double-aged blade, even penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit and of nerve fibers and myelin. And it's able to judge the deliberations and determinations of the heart. There is no created being that is hidden from his sight, not even Adam and Eve with their bespoke, tailored suits made of fig leaves. Everything and every being in creation is naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we are accountable. There's all kinds of ways of being naked and what naked means. And we might hit those, if not today, we'll hit them down the road. There's a series on TV, which I tuned into one time and then turned off very quickly. It's called Naked and Afraid. And people are actually naked and afraid as they go through these weird scenarios. And there's always the fuzzy lens on the parts that we shouldn't see in their nake, on their naked persons. Well, God doesn't have the fuzzy lens he sees at all. And he not only sees bodily overt things, he sees the inward thoughts and intents, the deliberations, the determinations, the resolutions, the illusions in our hearts. Now, here's the good part. It's not smooth, but it's good. If God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, that is, in a condemning judgment, and he didn't in John 3.17, but so that the world would be saved through him, again, John 3, 17. And if Jesus said he came into the world for judgment in John 9, 39, and he did, then the judgment, now listen, let's put it together. He didn't come into the world to judge the world, that is, condemnatory judgment, but that through him the world would be saved. But he came into the world for a judgment, he said, in John 9, 39. Now, how do you square those two? You'd have to say the judgment for which he came into the world must be a saving judgment. So when the word of God judges the thoughts and intents or the resolutions and determinations of the heart, it's doing so with the saving intent of God. 
So if he came into the world for judgment, which he came into the world for, it must be a saving judgment rather than a condemning judgment. Because of this, those who expected a damning judgment and those who expect a condemning censorious judgment under the ministry of the word. And when Jesus came, the word made flesh, those who expected a damning judgment on undeserving people and a justifying judgment on themselves, that is the Pharisees, the scribes, the self-righteous, the self-righteous who expected a judgment of justification on their self-righteousness were struck blind. Just like Saul of Tarsus was literally and physically struck blind on the outskirts of Damascus when he saw Jesus the Nazarene. But on the other hand, those who were blinded by the Pharisees' doctrine and who never expected a saving judgment and never thought they deserved one were cured of that blindness and made to see. Now, I'm convinced that Jesus Christ has universally redemptive significance and that his cross has universally reconciling and rectifying impact. Maybe you do too. Maybe you don't. It really doesn't matter to me, and I'm not going to try to convince you because I believe what Paul believes. God will convince you if you're otherwise-minded. I was once very otherwise-minded about what I just said to you, but God convinced me. So I'm not going to step into God's shoes and try to convince you. It would be a waste of time and energy. But some of us have been convinced that Jesus has universally redemptive significance, that his cross has universally reconciling and rectifying impact, that the only hell there is is the one he endured on the cross at the junction of the ages. So here's some exhortation for us to close with. We who have been convinced that Jesus has universally saving significance and that his cross or his death on the cross has universally reconciling and rectifying impact, we should not socially distance ourselves from our Christian brethren who are not convinced of the same thing. In fact, we should certainly rejoice in those things on which we agree. But we should not deny or compromise our conviction when asked what we think or what we believe. That's kind of like the issue was being faced in the Hebrews homily. We can answer with conviction and with courtesy. Believe it or not, you can have both conviction and courtesy. You can have firm belief and gentleness. You can even answer with charity. That means love and kindness. If your inquirers want to heap shame on you and break fellowship with us, 
or brand us with the iron of heresy and even consign us to hell as apostates, then let it be. God will convince them. God will convince them. God will convince them. God will convince him. God will convince her. All we owe them is love. And that's the same unpaid debt that we owe everybody. Owe no one anything but to love one another, said Paul in Romans 13.8. Now there's a thing called the anakephaliosis tapanta and Christo. Anakephaliosis. I'll just do the English transliteration of it. Anakephaliosis. Phalaiosis. You'll see this in print both in Greek text and in this English transliteration. Anakephaliosis. The summing up again of everything and then in Christ and Christo. There is the, the other time we see this word anakephaliosis is in Romans 13.10. It's found in Ephesians 1.10 as the summation of everything in Christ. It's found again in Romans 13.10 as the summing up of the law, meaning all that God requires of the universal person, you and me, spirit, soul, and body, in Romans 13.10. So the point is, the word anakephaliosis of all things and anakephaliosis of the law and of all that God requires being love. There should be a correspondence between the anakephaliosis and Christo, which we believe, and the anakephaliosis of all that God requires of us, which is love. If we hold the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ without love, then it's vain. It doesn't really mean anything. If we know all mysteries and yet don't have love, it's nothing. We're nothing. We tend to love our neighbor as ourselves, however, when we hold the insight that all will be saved. Let me put it in a little more expansive way. We tend to love our neighbor as ourselves when we hold the belief that all will be saved in God's love and by his loving action in Christ. So it's natural if we really hold to the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ to love everybody in the sense that we view them as having died with Christ and having been made alive in Christ and will be in future world redeemed. And so we love them in that sense. On the other hand, it's easy to write off people 
if we think they're destined to be discarded by God or thrown into the lake of fire to burn like the bodies of Christians who lit the pathways to Nero's outdoor parties. God isn't like Nero. He doesn't light people up and turn them into candles. It's easy to write off people and even hate if we think they're destined for an eternal stint in the lake of fire. We say, well, if God's rejected them, then I'll reject them. If God hates them, then I hate them. But if we believe in the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the anakephaliosis of all things in him, then we begin to understand that the anakephaliosis of all that God requires of us is love. And we owe nobody anything but that. That doesn't mean we don't pay our debts. What Paul is saying is the best policy is to not owe anybody anything, if you can, except for the unpaid debt, which is always unpaid until we get to heaven, to love one another. Now, the same division of soul and spirit in Hebrews 4.12 allows Christians, and I've said this a couple times before, to discern the metaphorical meaning of Scripture and distinguish it from the literal where it's necessary to do so. Without this differentiation, the preacher's words are perceived as scandalous, as Jesus were in John 6.53 to 6.68. In fact, the Bible does make a distinction between Christians who are operative solely in the soul, psuchikos Christians, and those who are operative in the spirit, pneumatikos persons. Thomas Talbot referred to a quote by the English professor and poet Evelyn Uemura, or Waimura. That's I don't know how to pronounce U Y E M U R A. And he said that she sometimes liked to say, quote, "We do not read the Bible the way it is; we read it the way we are." That's a significant truth. We read it the way we are. Are we literalist? We read it literally. Are we poetic? We read it poetically. Are we spiritual? We read it spiritually. Are we soulish? We read it sensually, literally, or emotionally. And so there's a distinction between readers of the Bible. I'm never impressed with somebody who says, I read the Bible once every year, all the way through, 10 chapters a day, da-da-da-da-da. I'm not impressed. If you tell me that you read the Bible and the Spirit is teaching you and show me some of the insights he's given you, I'm impressed. Don't let anyone get one over on you by saying, oh, I read the, I've read the Bible through five times. So What? That plus 50 cents won't get you a cup of coffee anymore. Now, 
There's a distinction between readers of the Bible. Some read it from a merely soulish or carnal perspective. Sarkikos is a third delineation, but it's related to psukikos. Some people read it from a carnal perspective. And that simply means that they're insensitive to its metaphorical and figurative style and language. While the spiritual person, being spirit-taught or God-taught, discerns that style and gets that language. They almost intuitively get the language of the Bible. But if someone says, and this is the exhortation I want to end on, if someone says, any one of us says, or assumes we are spiritual, but at the same time we despise those whom we deem to be merely soulish or carnal, then we're revealing our own carnality because the hallmark of the spiritual person is love. Paul remonstrated the Corinthian saints for being carnal. He had the right to as a pastor and as an apostle. He remonstrated the Corinthian saints for being carnal and for, he said, you're walking around like mere anthropoi, meaning just species homo sapien. Without spiritual consciousness or sensitivity. He did this not to cruelly mock them, but out of a deeply pastoral and caring love. The PT reproved his audience also in Hebrews as those who were, quote, still in need of milk. Hebrews 5.12. Even Paul did that with his readers in 1 Corinthians 3.2. But they both did it in the spirit of pastoral love and watchful care for their souls as men who must also give an account to God, not just for what's in their heart, but for their watchfulness over people's souls and for the way they rightly divided the word of truth. Hebrews 13, 17, 2 Timothy 2, 15. Amen.